Well, this may not come as a shock to many people, but a former employee of WeWork is suing the company over how Adam Newman exited. Apparently, they weren't a fan of the whole thing about how Adam Newman routinely enriched himself at the expense of everybody else. And the complaint that they launched has a few lines from it that I think are great. So I'm going to be going into that a little bit later. We have Disney Plus here. This is from Wednesday. The service came out Wednesday, and they have 10 million subscribers. That's two days, and they have 10 million subscribers. So I'm going to be talking about this, how it stacks up with Apple TV Plus and other competitors. And then I have to mention a few things from Jerome Powell's meeting before Congress. So he answered a lot of questions. A couple of them I thought were actually good questions that I'm going to be highlighting later in the episode. And then, of course, we have my portfolio. Every single company in it pays me money residually. So just in the background all the time, all these different holdings are paying me money. And I have it organized by sector. I have these sectors weighted to different percentages. I can go to any of them. I can click on consumer here and see all my different consumer holdings. If you're interested in seeing all the holdings I have, there's a link in the description. It just says main portfolio. That one will open it up and then you can click through all the different sectors yourself. But I want to give an update on what I talked about in the last video. If you missed it, it's this one here, episode 54, Should I Invest Now or Wait Until a Recession? Now, this video is that you will sell everything during a recession. And you might have saw the title there and gone, well, that's a little bit of a, a presumptuous title there. You don't know if I'm going to sell everything during recession. You know, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm going to do. Well, welcome to my world. Here's an email that I got, and these aren't unique. I get these type of emails and messages all the time. What I wanted to do just to show the other side, because I think it's good when you guys aren't just hearing one person's opinion. You know, my video, the last video, I argued and showed different examples of how I think the best strategy in investing is to invest all the time, as frequently as possible, put as much money as you can into investments while having a savings, and then continually dollar cost average into the market. And that the key part of it is not selling. Now, I had one person write in with this email. I'll go ahead and leave out his name. He says, hey man, you obviously didn't go through the Great Recession. Your opinion will change when you watch your account go down by 60 to 70%. You will be a seller because the economy will be taking a crap just like it did then. You'll be unsure about your job and no one will be hiring. There'll be tons of layoffs all around you and even in the government. They call it a sequester. In the government, regular companies were laying off thousands. Gas will be around $5 a gallon and your investments will be down hundreds of thousands of dollars. Half your companies will slash their dividend and that will half their price. Same with bonds. They will be downgraded just like they were in the Great Recession. A lot of these charts are not reporting the Great Recession prices correctly. This is a long email, so it keeps going on. He says, your house will be worth half. You might say you rent, but it's when they raise rents, just like they did then. The Great Recession was the whole economy went down the tubes. That's what the problem was. It wasn't just poof and a recession. It was an erosion of certain things over a few years. Housing, oil, wages, sentiment, unemployment. You'll see, brother, when you watch your entire net worth get eviscerated by 60 to 70%, you'll do what everyone did. And that's just try to get into something that doesn't go down by 60%. We were moving all Ross 401ks to money markets just so we don't get negative returns. We all stopped our contributions to tax-free accounts because they were losing money. And yes, we did talk just like now. You are just thinking your generation is smarter than everyone else's and it's not. It will happen like last time. There won't be one event of poof a recession. It'll be like wading into a muddy bottom pond little by little until you turn around and you can't get out. This is why we are paying close attention to things like what the Fed is doing to counter the inverted yield curve, because it's really about the government and big business do together. That's what causes these things to domino. You'll see, my friend, why we still work with gold and silver and cash, because we went through it and it was insane. 
they tend to remove those things from YouTube. We heard the same old song and dance from guys like you back in the housing market. We are all making all this money. Yep, what goes up will come down. It took about 10 to 12 years to recover. Yep, that long. Right now, you should be waiting to see what happens through the holidays and winter. The market usually turns a little bearish. Most important, why the Fed is doing a counter to the downturn. Okay, well, that was that was his first email. So uh, that's a lot to take in, you know. I'm, I'm reading through that. There's, there's a lot there in that email. And what I did, I just wanted to confirm something. So I just replied with one sentence. I said, I, I'm guessing you sold out during the recession. And he wrote back, he said, Joseph, as I wrote, everyone sold out and you will too. Imagine your portfolio going from 60 to 10,000 with no stop to the downturn in sight. Not only did you lose your gains, but you lost almost all your initial investment. Same for your house. Most people's homes went upside down. Therefore, many people were negative net worth like three to 400,000. Imagine all your money you put down on your house and it's gone. Poof. You'll see, brother. You can't imagine it. But we all lived through it. It was only 10 years ago. The government is starting to do things that are how it began last time. Over-leveraged derivatives, relaxing qualification requirements for risky loans, credit default swaps, etc. I'm not saying what you're doing is wrong, but you might want to set up some stop losses and safety ripcords because you won't want to buy as it tanks. You think you will, but the environment will be very scary. You'll see when the economy does something that huge stocks cut their dividends. Everyone got out last time because it was a minefield. Every company cut it. It was part of the market downturn. No, that's it. That's uh, the second email. That's where this little exchange ended, right? So I, you know, I didn't really respond or anything beyond this, but I thought it would be good to to let other people and highlight this this exchange because recessions aren't always as simple as saying, hey, I'll just buy during the dip. Obviously, this person's experience was not that during the recession. It was a scary time. When you're having a hard time finding work, that brings into a whole different factor. No longer are you worried about your investment strategy. You're worried about just paying current bills. So this person had a very rough time during the last recession. I don't want to undercut that or question any of the decisions they made. My purpose in highlighting this again was to give a different perspective. It's easy to sit here now at 10 years in a bull market that most investors now have been investing in. The market has generally just gone up. So it's easy to sit there and go, well, investing is easy. I don't know why everybody doesn't just do this all the time. But really what happens is this is the outcome sometimes when it decides to turn down. He says, Joseph, as I wrote, everyone sold out and you will too. That's a statement in this email that he repeats a lot of times that everybody sold out and that I will too. Now, obviously, you know, I put that in the title of the video and I'm sure that you might've thought that that's pretty presumptuous, a statement of me to make that you're going to sell out. And you might've said that that's not true. That's like clickbait. It's not true. And that's the same feeling that I get that I don't think I'm going to be selling out of all of my holdings during a recession. There's no way of seeing into the future what's going to happen. So none of us really know what we're going to do in a recession. But what I will say is the statement that everybody sold out is objectively false. That's not true. Um, not everybody sold out. And I know that if you're one of the ones where your portfolio went down 50% or more and you decided to move into cash after that point and you lost a lot of money, it's it might be comforting to, in a way, convince yourself that everybody else did the same thing, right? Well, I lost a lot of money in the recession, but everybody did, right? I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't make any bad decisions. Everybody did the same thing. It was just the environment. It was really scary. Everybody was scared about their jobs. So, you know, everybody sold out during the recession as well. Um, that's not accurate. There's a lot of people that kept invested that continually added to their positions because their job wasn't at threat. There's a lot of people that kept employed all the way through the recession and were able to continually contribute to their portfolio. 
Now, just to highlight this, I wanted to show a real portfolio of somebody I know personally that they gave me access to their investment account so I could show it during this video. So I'm not going to give away their name or anything, but this is their 401k. And as you can see, it goes all the way back to 2006. Currently, the current value today is $604,000. In 2006, it was $95,000. Now, this person, obviously, they had their portfolio through the recession. They did not sell a single share during the recession. And they continually practiced dollar cost averaging by maxing out their match of their 401k all the way through the recession and all the way climbing up during this bull market. And you can see what happens there when they put this into practice. This portfolio has grown from $95,000 in 2006 to $604,000 today. And again, that's through dollar cost averaging. Now, the interesting thing here is if we go back to before the recession started, you can see the bull market going up into 2007. This is where things were in a bubble. Obviously, the housing market was about to bust. There was a, a credit crisis that was about to happen. And then right here, it happened. It was at $134,000. That was October of 2007. And then in January of 2008, $88,000. Went from 134 dollars to $88,000. Then in 2009, went down even further, $75,000. Down to $73,000 in February of 2009. Effectively cutting the portfolio in half as he was making contributions to this portfolio. So again, $134,000 at the end of 2007. In February of 2009, $72,000. Now, this is where it gets real. This dip right here, uh, it's easy to be an investor during a bull market. You can see the lead up to 2007, how smooth and gradual of an increase this is. This is what the stock market is generally doing right now, just going up and up and up. And it's easy to invest during that time. Everybody feels smart, like they're, you know, you're making lots of money, you're seeing your portfolio go up in value. But the real test is what you do when the market goes down. What are you going to do when your portfolio drops 10, 20, 30%? If the answer is, I'm going to get really scared, I'm going to start second guessing everything, I'm going to you know, question every bit of advice I've heard and think that these guys, they didn't know what they're talking about, this is really scary, and you're going to sell out, you should just sell out now. If you're that type of personality that can't handle seeing those type of losses, then you should not be in the stock market. Now, I know the person that owns this portfolio and they had a decent job. They didn't lose their job during the recession or anything like that. And they actually just kept contributing during it, right? They weren't too worried about it. They had their 401k matched. They kept automatically contributing. And you can see what happens when, when you keep contributing. In 2010, their portfolio went back up to where it was previously. And then from there, it went from 100,000 all the way up to 600,000 where it stands now. So you can see what happens when you take advantage of a bull run. It creates an amount of wealth that's just difficult to match in any other investment vehicle. There's nothing else that's created so much wealth over such a long period of time. That's what the stock market has done. Now, the reason that I spend so much time talking about this type of stuff, a lot of people have a hard time with these downturns, even small ones where you see stocks drop 5% or like right here on this graph, it went from 550,000 to 480,000. That's $70,000 in value gone right there. And then it went right back up. A lot of people, even this type of jump here would frighten them out of the market. Now, I want to share an analogy that I thought was really good on this subject. It's from Josh Brown of CNBC. I wish I could claim this analogy of my own because I think it's fantastic. But he's talking about why the stock market is so difficult for people to, to visualize it and to keep invested in it and how it differs from the economy. You got a guy, he's got a leash, there's a dog on the other end of it they're walking in the same direction. However, if you observe the way the man crosses the park, his gait, 
his stride. It's fairly straightforward, very few deviations, um, kind of like an economic trend. Then when you think about what the dog is doing, the dog is running around like a lunatic. The dog is barking at people. It darts to the left. It darts to the right. It strains on the leash. Maybe it chases a squirrel, uh, barks again. The thing with the dog is that's the stock market. The man walking the dog is the economy. So they both end up in the same place. They're both sort of walking in the same direction most of the time. There's a lot less deviation in how the man walks than how the dog walks. And I think when you consider the stock market barking, jumping back and forth, straining at its leash, that's a really good way to control your own emotions and to say to yourself, okay, the economy is probably not fluctuating to the same extent that the dog is or the stock market is. So we use that analogy all the time. I think that's a really good analogy by Josh Brown, that the stock market is like the little dog that's going back and forth on the leash, and the economy is like the man that's walking in a more straight path. I've even seen this in my portfolio. My portfolio is a lower beta portfolio. Now, that's one of those fancy financial terms that means that my dog is a tamer dog, that he darts back and forth less because, you know, the owner has trained him and he stays a little bit more on a straight path is still not as tame as the general economy. So you're not going to find a portfolio that tracks the economy perfectly. But my portfolio is like a dog that tries to stay on the path a little bit more. It has less volatility, meaning on a day-to-day basis, mine usually goes up less than the highs and down less than the lows. But even so, with my portfolio, these stocks go up and down all the time. If I went to the past day, today it's down $65. Yesterday I was up $600 right? It changes every single day, goes up and down every single day. That's why I like to focus on metrics that are actually more tied with what the company is doing. The dividends paid by a company is more tied to the actual company performance. So when I look at this past week, I see that I'm up $319 in gains, but a lot of that is going to be market gains. Again, these go up and down every single day. Yesterday, I ended the day with $600 in market gains. But what I focus on more is this earned dividends here, $91. In the past five days, I've made $91 in dividends. So I've passed through enough of the ex-dividend dates with these companies that I've earned that $91. Once this $91 is paid out, it usually takes like a week or two until they pay out. That'll go into the cash balance. And since I have auto invest on, it'll be automatically invested into the underweight holdings I have in my portfolio. So $91 in a week is a lot too. Whatever word you want to use to describe that, whether that's passive income or residual income, I don't care. It's money I really didn't have to do much for. Now, a couple other things I wanted to look at was a survey that CNBC did on the amount of Americans that believe we are going to go into a recession in 2020. So this is a poll they did. They sampled a pretty wide range of audience, and we get to see the results here. Hi there, Wilfred. A new CNBC Acorns Invest in You survey conducted by SurveyMonkey finds a majority of Americans think a recession is likely in the next year. So in this survey they conducted, they found that over half of Americans actively believe right now that they will be in a recession next year, in 2020. That's right around the corner. That's a month away, right? Sometime within the next like 12 months, we're going to be in a recession. And the last recession was really bad. We read that whole scary email at the beginning of this episode. Wasn't a fun thing to go through. For a lot of people, it was a really hard thing to go through, right? Um, Now, this is interesting because most Americans believe that we are going to be in one next year. If I pair this up with another piece of data, I think it's interesting to compare the two. The average savings rates, meaning the amount that people save of their income, on average is 8.3%. So majority of Americans think we'll be hitting a recession sometime within the next 12 months. It's right around the corner. Yet we're saving less than 10% of our income. 
that seems to be, you know, it doesn't stack up with each other. People, they believe that we're going to hit a recession, but we're not doing anything to actively prepare ourselves for that to happen. So my suggestion would be, if you're concerned about a recession, you're concerned about when to invest, when to not invest. I do not think it's a good strategy to time your investments around a recession. It's incredibly difficult to do. Even if you do time it correctly and you save all of your money until a recession starts, you don't know when the bottom is. You really don't know when to buy. I think a much better strategy is to increase your savings rates far above 8%. If you truly believe we're going to hit a recession, save 15, 20, 30%. Save it as much as you can of your money. You'll be better off with the pile of money sitting on the side than without it, right? That will give you time to go through any hardship through recession until the economy recovers. So increase your savings rate. Make your portfolio a little bit more defensive and allocate some money to savings. That's not a really complicated thing. Most Americans get in trouble because they don't do any of that. They only have a couple thousand dollars in savings. They don't really have any money set on the side to deal with it. And they're not actively working to prepare themselves for this. So those are a couple of my suggestions. I do not think that sitting all your investable money that you don't need for savings on the side, thinking that you're going to time all the purchases correctly right at the bottom of the recession Good luck with that. I don't think it's a great strategy. I don't think you're going to be able to time your buys correctly. And I rarely see examples of people buying during the perfect times. What I do see a lot of examples of, of people that do this, where they just invest and they keep investing and they keep investing and they don't worry about the price currently. That's the strategy I see a lot. And I see graphs like this all the time. This is a real one of somebody that I know personally. And these type of things happen all the time. He didn't have to do anything complex to make this work out. This is the strategy that I'm going to be trying to follow, not one where I'm trying to time the market. All right, so moving on from that, I have to talk about Disney's streaming service here. Disney got more than 10 million signups just in the past couple days. That's how many they've had since their launch on Wednesday. And the first day that they opened, the streaming service actually had like some technical problems because they had more people jumping on midweek, the first day they opened than they actually expected. But they seem to fix that now. They had 10 million signups, which was a lot more than everybody expected. Doesn't really surprise me. I've been saying this for a long time over and over again in all my videos, if you watched it, that I think Disney will do better than what most people think. And I've said this before many times in the past. In fact, I'll play a little clip from one of my videos. This was in May 3rd. All right. So consumers, this is what it's currently at. This is what you're accustomed to seeing. And then I moved it to this. The reason I bumped Disney up is I think that their streaming service is going to do really well. I know that they've just gone up recently, but I still think that they have a lot of runway in the future. I still think people are going to undervalue them. I think their streaming service will do better than most people most people believe. So that was a call I made back in May 3rd of Disney doing really well with their streaming service. This is long before the streaming service was released. And since then, it moved from my second top spot to my top spot in Consumer Pie. You can see right now, out of all the consumer companies I have, I have Disney at the top. Because, again, I think out of all, all the companies, a lot of people are saying Disney, you know, it's overvalued or it's at the, their max value right now. I just don't see the case for that. I see the crazy multiples that people give Netflix and other streaming services that don't have parks, that don't have cruise ships, that don't have merchandise. Disney has all of that, plus they're launching a streaming service, that they're going to have that recurring business model. And I think there's just a lot more margin of safety with their company. So you can see that the returns since then have been pretty good. I'm going to continue keeping this one up in the top spot on my consumer pie right now. On that note, I wanted to look at something 
that I thought was interesting. We had, with Disney's streaming service, most people are familiar with their content, but The Mandalorian was the big new show out that people are really excited for. And I just wanted to compare the user response, the reviews to The Mandalorian Disney service compared to Apple TV+, Plus, the other new streaming service. The Mandalorian got 9.1% on IMDb. It is a challenge to get a show over 9%. That means that you're up in the top tier of the top rated shows. Most good shows on IMDb, I noticed the cutoff of when a show is like pretty good to when they're they're not great is around 7 out of 10. If it gets over 7 out of 10, usually it's a decent show. Now, The Mandalorian, 9.1 out of 10. That's with one episode released, so we'll see how it goes with the first episode. I watched it and I thought it was personally pretty good. I didn't think it was like phenomenal you know it didn't blow me away i thought it was a really good start to a series i'll definitely be watching the next episodes now we have the morning show this is a big one on apple tv plus i've actually watched some of this show and you know i watch it with the wife she really likes it and i enjoy it too i wish there was a little bit more of steve carell's character in it i find his storyline really interesting in it but he's not in it too often but on IMDb, this one's rated 8.2, so it's a great rating. Not quite up to the 9.1 that The Mandalorian is. And then the other TV series, C is a 7.7. not quite as positive as Mandalorian. And most of the ratings for their other shows go, go down after this. So Disney continues to create shows that people enjoy and people watch. Really high-rated stuff that appeals to a huge audience. The Mandalorian is not just for kids. It's mostly actually more on the adult side with the content of it in that it's a pretty violent show. But uh, this Disney platform, I think it has a huge audience. It's at a very cheap price point. I think Disney will continue to grow that $10 million to $20 million really quickly. Now moving on from that, I have to mention this for a minute. We have Adam Newman here and WeWork. This is the infamous CEO that ran a company kind of into the ground that had to be bailed out by SoftBank. And in doing so, he walked away with billions of dollars and he got all this consulting compensation and all these other sweetheart deals. Why the rest of the company lost so much value that the employees weren't able to even have part of their compensation, which is the exercise of stock options. So a lot of them were working under the assumption they were going to be able to exercise their stock options. That was going to be part of their total compensation. But the value of the company went down so far that they're not even able to do that. And a lot of them are being laid off now. They're firing about 4,000 people. So a lot of people, I think quite fairly, are upset with the situation, especially the former WeWork employees. One of them is so upset that they're suing WeWork over the way that this all played out. So one of the employees says, quote, it is beyond comprehension why Newman would be paid $185 million to provide strategic guidance to a company when his guidance resulted with the virtual destruction of the company. That's what the lawsuit says. If you don't remember, Adam Newman is getting a consulting fee where he's being paid $185 million over like four years to consult for WeWork. Again, this is the company that had the most botched IPO that lost significant value that had to be bailed out. And he's being paid hundreds of millions of dollars just to consult for them. Now, the actual lawsuit is launched by Natalie Soika. That's the the person suing. And it accuses Newman and other WeWork directors of benefiting themselves at the expense of the minority shareholders, breaching their fiduciary duty, creating corporate waste, unjustly enriching themselves, and abusing control, among other things. And it also lifts off the SoftBank CEO as a defendant. So we'll see how this plays out. I don't think that this is a frivolous lawsuit. I think most of the complaints that Natalie has are pretty accurate. Now, the last thing in the news I wanted to mention is that Jerome Powell is before Congress. He's, you know, he's meeting with them, answering all their questions on the economy. And out of the few hours that I I listened to it, uh, there's a couple of good questions I think were asked. One of the questions was from Mike Lee, and I thought that this was an interesting exchange. 
We in the United States, uh, that the United States government <clears throat> borrows uh, in its, its own currency, it's, this level of spending isn't a problem because the Fed can just monetize the debt and keep doing so more or less indefinitely. Well, what's your reaction to that talk? Are there risks inherent in it? Yes. No, I, and I, as I mentioned in my, in my testimony, um, the fact that interest rates are lower does mean that we will pay less in interest. It does not mean that we can ignore deficits at all. Uh, we're, we're going to have to get on a sustainable path. What, what does that mean? So um, the debt is growing faster than the economy. It's as simple as that in nominal terms. And uh, that is, by definition, unsustainable. Ultimately, you will have to get it to, to where the debt is not growing faster than the economy. And it's growing faster in the United States by a, by a pretty significant margin. So there he's saying that our debt, our national debt, is growing at a faster rate than the economy is growing. And I think a good analogy for this, I've shared already one analogy in this video, but I'll share another, is that the U.S. economy is like a high income earner, right? Let's pretend that the U.S. economy, it's like you're living next to a brain surgeon, right? That's one of your neighbors down the street is a brain surgeon. And you know, he makes about six hundred to $700,000 a year. That's his salary. And if you look up a brain surgeon, that's about how much money that they, they might be able to make. Now, you think, wow, he, he has a lot of money. He's doing really well. But that brain surgeon spends about a million dollars a year. And living down the street, you might go, why can't he just spend six hundred or $700,000 a year? He makes a lot of money. Why can't he just spend as much money as he makes or even less money than he makes? That's the question I think a lot of people ask Congress of why are we spending more money than we make? We're a strong economy. You know, we make a lot of money. Why is it so difficult to spend less money than we make? But we don't. It seems like neither side is really too concerned about the national debt. From the impressions I get from Congress and the spending habits, we make a lot of money and we spend more. Jerome Powell repeats the message that eventually that will catch up to us, that eventually those debts need to be paid back. And when that happens, it's going to be a rough time for whatever generation or whatever group of people are going to have to burden paying back those debts. Now, another highlight from this is Jerome Powell's asked about the Fed rate and if he's going to continue keeping it low or if he plans on raising it in the future. With my final uh, 30 seconds, um, do you anticipate maintaining the current uh, Fed rate through the next year? I know I wouldn't say that at all. I, what, what we said, what I've said here, and I'll go right to the actual language, is that we see the current stance of monetary policy as likely to remain appropriate as long as incoming information about the economy remains broadly consistent with our outlook of moderate growth, a strong labor market, and inflation near our symmetric 2% objective. So that's a very data-dependent mm -hmm. statement. Um, we do think monetary policy is in a, in a good place, but we're going to be watching very carefully incoming data, and if developments emerge that cause a material reassessment of the outlook, then we'll act appropriately. So he's saying there's no guarantee that they're going to keep the Fed rate this low he might still lower it next year. He might raise it next year. It depends on the data. Okay, let's go ahead and jump to some questions here. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. You can email me there with any of your questions. You can also contact me on Instagram or Twitter. The first one's from Jack. He says, hello, Joseph. I hope all is well. I've just recently started to watch your weekly investing series and I cannot get enough of it. I love the information you give and think it's amazing how your portfolio is growing. 
I'm becoming very interested in dividend growth investing myself and had a question for you. I'm a freshman at Ohio University. I have a summer job where I make around $3,000 a summer and then do not work during the school year as of now. I have around $5,000 saved up in a savings account at the moment. I have a very small portfolio in Robinhood worth around $130. I want to start investing solely in M1 Finance, but I'm not sure how much to invest. I'm getting my first year of college paid for by my parents. And then the next three years, I have to come up with the money. I want to just hear your opinion on how much you would invest in this situation. I have a rough idea of my risk level and what sectors and markets I'm willing to invest in, but I'm not sure if I should just hold on to the money, which could make a dent in my college loans in the future, or start investing some of the money now and create more wealth. I would love to hear your opinion on what you would do and any other advice you might have. Keep making great videos. Best, Jack. Okay, Jack. So you have 5000 saved up. Your parents are paying for your first year of college, and then you're on your own to foot the bill of the college after that. In your situation, your primary goal should be saving up for your college. So that should be your your primary thing you should do. Really, investing is the fun part because you know you're buying your companies, you're seeing your wealth grow over time, you're seeing all these good things happen. But the worst thing, like the worst situation to be in, that I know a lot of listeners are in this situation, a lot of people in general are in this situation, is they can see how fun investing is. That's what they're wanting to do right now, but they have these pesky loans on their shoulder, constantly chirping at them that they have to be paying these off. And what you need to focus on when you're in college is totally minimizing your debt as much as possible. Taking out the absolute smallest loans you can, only getting money for exactly what you need it for, not a penny more. The last thing you want to do is graduate with an enormous sum of debt that you have a 20-year payment plan, that you're going to constantly be paying those payments off over time. And then you're going to be in the situation where you're you know, you're wanting a candidate to win, so it might be relieved someday and you're trying to make the minimum payments and hopefully in 20 years it will be, you know, it'll be forgiven and all of that. A lot of people are in that situation. I'm telling you, it's not a fun situation to be in. It's not fun paying for something over and over again that you've already consumed. You know, once you're through school, you're already done with it. You want to move on to the next part of your life, but yet we have people paying for it for the next 20 years of their life. So do everything you can to make it so that when you graduate, it's a one-year thing. It's a two-year thing. You're, you're through your debts in a couple years. You're done with them. They're behind you. That's the situation you want to be in. Um, as far as balancing investments and saving for your college, I would put it at like 95.5. So I might put, uh, you know, 50 bucks a month into investments. I would never advise to put nothing into investments because there's really no bar to entry right now. Meaning you can buy fractional shares. You can start funding your portfolio with 50 bucks a month. And I think that that's still worth it to do. The reason being is because it, it builds that habit. It builds that skill set of investing. And so it's worth it to start putting some money in, even if it's a very small amount, just because you're trading real money, you're getting used to the market, all these type of lessons you learn of the stock market going up and down. I just think it's worth the skill set there to learn how to invest. You can do that with any amounts of money. You can start to learn how to invest. So What I would do in your situation is I'd put a very small amount in investments. I'd make that a monthly thing and I'd get in the habit of that. But I would put 95% of your money saved up towards your tuition and make sure to take out absolutely as minimal loans as possible. Do not pile on debt. They make it way too easy to get money these days. The, the, The way that banks loan money, especially to students, is absurd. They don't even look at your financial future. They don't care if you can pay it back. They just say, hey, you should have the right to go to college, which means that we have the right to give you enormous amounts of money that we know you can't pay back with high interest rates that's gonna put you in a terrible situation. So 
the big focus, Jack, is minimizing your debt. That is the big focus. I'd rather you do that than anything else. But I think at the same time, if you want to put 20, 50 bucks into a portfolio every month, I think that that's a skill set that you can learn on the side that after you do graduate in a couple of years, you'll have some money in investments and you'll have all that experience of doing it for a few years to really figure out the style and exactly what you want to do. The next question is from Daniel. He says, hello, if I copy you, he says, hello, if I copy you, will I be successful? Will I get the same dividend payout rates if I copy your portfolio? Uh, the answer to that first question, if I copy you, will I be successful? The The expected return you get from a company, from investing in it, is totally dependent on the price you're paying for it. So if you buy the same holdings that I have, but you're only buying them on green days when the stocks have already raced up, but then you sell them on red days or you don't invest anything on red days, you're going to have different returns than I do. So uh, the time that you buy and sell depends on it, even with the same holding. That's a huge factor. And another thing is, is there's no guarantee of success with this, right? These are my best guess. I've invested in companies that I think are fairly solid companies. Most of them are in the S&P 500. They're conservative dividend paying companies that I think have pretty good moats. So they're very competitive companies that I think will be successful. But, you know, there's no way to say that for sure. This isn't like selling car insurance. There's risk when you invest in the stock market. Nobody can see the future. So keep that in mind that even if you're investing in the exact same portfolio as me, you won't have the exact same results because it's unlikely that you're going to be depositing money, the same amount of money at the exact same time as me. So that'll change your returns a little bit here. As far as the dividend payout rates, yeah, if you invest in the same portfolio, you're going to have the exact same dividend yield when whenever it is that you purchase those companies, and they're going to pay out at the same date. So that part is true that if you use the same portfolio, you'll be seeing dividends coming at the same time. All right, next question says, Joseph, uh, one question, can you explain why a company is concerned about its stock price? I understand at the IPO, they get money to help grow the company, but 10 years later, when I buy a share from someone at $15 or $200, what does that matter to the company? Is it merely a matter of public perception? A good stock price is a healthy company. Looking forward to hearing your response if you choose to answer it and sharing your channel with anyone I get to listen. Uh, well, I appreciate you sharing the channel with other people. There's a number of reasons why a company cares about its share price, even if they're not directly benefiting from the shares trading upwards. But there's a lot of indirect ways that they benefit from it. First of all, there's there's two ways. If a company needs capital, right, they need some money, there's two ways to raise that. One's through equity, one's through debt. So if the company is at really high valuation, it makes both of those options cheaper. If they want to issue debt, usually they get a better interest rate on that because their company's worth a lot of money. It's not as risky to lend to a company that's worth a lot of money than one that's not worth a lot of money. So they get a better interest rate on debt. Now, the other option is if they want to sell more stock, they can do that and people pay them a higher price for that stock. So when their share price goes up, it makes it so that if a company ever needs capital, they have a much cheaper form of funding. So that's an important part there. Even beyond that, um, if they don't really have capital needs, there's other things that it protects them against. So if a company's share price falls too much, it makes it so that other companies with bigger share prices can actually purchase that company. So a lot of companies are made up of like, you know, they have their board of advisors, they have a couple big owners in it, a couple big investors, but nobody owns more than like 20, 30% of the company. So if the share price falls a lot, a buyer could come in, 
of a bigger company and do a hostile takeover. So they could buy up 40% of the company and now they effectively run the company. They own it. They can do whatever they want. They can fire all the other people. You know, they, they can do all these hostile things with the company that, uh, that the current owners rather avoid. And the way that they avoid those type of situations from happening is keeping their share price high enough that other people won't be able to take over their company. So that's just a couple reasons, you know, they, they get a cheaper line of capital companies with high share prices. They have an easier time getting cheap capital and it protects them from bad situations that they don't want to be in where people can come and buy large swaths of their company and, you know, get board seats and take over the company that way. So yes, people that are owners of company like to keep their share price high. It has a lot of different benefits. There's ones beyond that as well. All right. Well, that's, uh, all the questions I'm going to do in this video, it's gone a little bit longer than I thought. In the future, I plan on doing a video that's going to be mostly just questions and answers. So if you have any questions about anything for me, it doesn't even have to be stock related, send them to me. I'd be interested in reading over them. I plan on doing a longer episode where I go through a lot of different people's questions. So you can send them at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. There's also links in the description to my social media. I check that as well. But that's all for now. I'll see you guys next time.